0: If you happen to have the study guide that went out on the internet, uh, that was intended to give us some background for this lesson, and the outline from which we'll be speaking this morning is a little bit different than that, and so we'll take a look at it uh, now. After the introduction, we'll see the Apostle's prediction. When the Apostle Paul makes prediction, we better be listening up. Then the church's predicament, the church there in Ephesus, to whom he is writing this message. And then the present comparison, what's in it for us? Is there anything we can learn from what is going on in ancient Ephesus? Then we'll take a look at the conclusion. We want to introduce today's lesson with a question. What will this church, Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship, look like 25 years from now? I don't mean the church building, but I mean the organic church Will the person in the pew, that's you, be able to recognize the faith once delivered to the saints? Or will the church be swallowed up by the culture? That's our question. Paul's prediction, of course, that's the question always facing the church. What will the future look like? Will we remain faithful? Will true Christianity be preserved? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth. This same concern was before the church at Ephesus when Paul made his second visit to the city during his third missionary journey. Paul invested a lot of time and energy in the city of Ephesus and in the surrounding region. It became a center for evangelizing the western region of Asia Minor. Later, about 60 AD, when Paul was imprisoned in Rome, he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, delivered by Tychicus, we're told in Ephesians 6, 21, the epistle to the saints which are at Ephesus, verse 1. It was likely intended for a broader audience than just the church there, and it was likely circulated among all the churches in the Ephesus area. Paul now comes to the time where he's going to be departing from Ephesus, and he has a meeting with the elders. We're in Acts 20, if you want to follow along in Scripture there. We find Paul, as he prepares to depart from the city, gathering the elders and making a prediction of what the future would hold for their church. Now, wouldn't it be something if we had the Apostle Paul here today and we can say, Now, Paul, tell us what's going to happen here at Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship. Well, there may be some things that we can draw from what he told them, Because the battle hasn't changed, and the enemy hasn't changed, and the goal of our faith has not changed. So Acts 20 and verse 28 through 31. Now remember, Paul had the very distinct benefit of divine inspiration. When he said something, you could bank on it. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears." Well, what would be the means by which we would ensure faithfulness if we're going to remain faithful? As we mentioned, later on in his imprisonment, Paul wrote a message back to the Ephesians and he's giving them some excellent advice with regard to how to remain faithful. In order to be faithful to God, you have to know God's instructions. If you don't know what God wants you to do, it's going to be very difficult to be faithful to God's call and commitment because we don't understand what that means. And it's very distorted in our day just what it would mean even to be a Christian and certainly to be a faithful Christian. This is why we ought to have an interest in the book of Ephesians. Paul is telling them precisely what they need to know to keep the faith. this letter contains the most comprehensive thoughts from God about the church, the universal church, all believers everywhere. And Paul tells us how the church is supposed to function on the earth. We have a lot of questions today about the church, don't we? What comprises a church? Can my family meet in the living room on Sunday morning and have a Bible lesson and is that the church? And what if some friends and other family join us? Does that comprise a church? Can BSF be my church? What are the functions of a church? Does it count if I just visit around different churches, church dating? See if there would be any that I like out there. Does a church have any authority in my life? Do I have any responsibility to the church? What if my church does something that I don't like? Like maybe using some music that didn't come from the psalter or something else that I just didn't care for. And when should I just throw up my hands and quit and try to figure out if I need to go to another church? There are many questions today with regard to the church. Now these questions are beyond the scope of our study this morning, but they are very important. And we need to be thinking about those things But we want to look now at the predicament of the church there in Ephesus. It's the same predicament of our church and most any other church in our day. Our culture does not approve of the church and we are under enemy attack. That's the predicament of the the church. So are we going to follow the scripture and do what God tells us to do Are we going to try to uh, straddle the culture and the Bible and maybe just become cultural Christians in order to reach out to some other people in the culture and maybe at least get them in church? If they come to church, are they going to hear the truth of God's Word? Certainly we want to reach our culture for Christ. But we have a problem with that. The problem is our culture has departed Far and away from what the church stands for. Now, admittedly, if you have an apostate church, the culture is going to love you because you look just like they do and you'll be very acceptable. But we have an enemy in this business and the enemy loves to attack the church. The apostle used his prophetic insight in writing. Of course, the Holy Spirit has inspired him. And he's writing to the Ephesians now. And we said that he's writing in 60 to 62 A.D. And he's telling them what's going to happen. And then uh, the Apostle John, you remember, exiled on the Isle of Patmos, was also writing to some churches. And he wrote in 96 A.D., according to some scholars, much later. Others would say he wrote in 70 A.D., But whether you get an earlier date or a later date, the things that Paul was writing about in 60 AD are going to be the very things that we see coming true when John writes to the church there at Ephesus. The danger is apostasy. Revelation, chapter 2, 1 through 5. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, The one who walks among the seven golden candlesticks says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What does that mean? He's going to remove the lampstand out of its place. We are the light of the world. We are to be a light in this community and in the world. And if we are not following what God has given us in Scripture, we will become apostate, and our light will dim, and it might go out just like the light of the church in Ephesus. Now apostasy, or turning away from the faith, in a church, or a school, or a Christian institution, usually begins to run its course in a period of about 40 years. And we can see that all the way back in the Old Testament book of Judges. We see the Deuteronomic cycle over and over again in Judges. We see the people there in peace, covenant faithfulness in the land, but all of a sudden they get pulled away by the culture. And there is sin, including idolatry, injustice, false worship. Then comes God's judgment. War, famine, pestilence, death, all kinds of bad things, the people can't stand it. They cry out to the Lord for deliverance. God hears their cry, He sends deliverance through a king, a judge, a prophet. You remember the judges that God sent in the book of Judges? And God gives deliverance. Then the people return to the covenant. God brings redemption, healing, and peace. Now you can think about that 40-year cycle in our own country. And you can think about the institutions of higher learning, such as Harvard, and Yale, and Princeton, and Dartmouth, they were all founded as institutions where young men might be trained for the gospel ministry. But that didn't last too long because, as you know, they turned away from the faith and began to preach, teach, we should say, against the faith and against the Scripture. Two Sundays ago, Yvonne and I had the privilege of hearing Dr. Harry Reader in Birmingham, and he was uh, giving an example of King's Chapel in Boston. In 1740, the great evangelist George Whitfield was preaching in Boston. He was preaching in King's Chapel, and a great revival broke out, the Great Awakening. And from that church in Boston, which is still there today, the revival spread to other churches, But by 1780, that church had become a heretical uh, Unitarian Universalist church and is today preaching a heretical gospel. And that's the way things go if we're not very careful. Now, the enemy has two powerful weapons that he likes to use against the church to ensure this process of, of apostasy. And see, it takes a long time. So we look around and we say, well, we're doing pretty well now. We're studying the Bible. We've got things going here. We meet for prayer. But it's very subtle, and it comes in over time. The first thing he wants to do is dilute the Bible so that believers would become more concerned with acceptance by others, including culture, rather than acceptance by God according to the Scriptures. All of the higher criticism of the Bible, all of the modern, liberal, postmodern writings about the Scripture that doesn't really mean what it says it means, it's uh, not really uh, giving a message that it claims to give, it's all something else. And it may be just something else in your mind as an individual. It may be an existentialist message, and whatever you get out of it, that's good for you. Maybe I'm getting something else out of it. That's what we have to contend with. That's what was going on in Paul's day as well. But if that won't do it, how about this strategy? Distract believers with great and wonderful things that would take the place of commitment to the church and to the study of God's Word and to obedience. What kind of great and wonderful things? Great and wonderful athletics. I love athletics. Great and wonderful hobbies. Great and wonderful courses of study development in the arts, all kinds of things that are good and that are, can be used in God's kingdom, but that can be a distraction if they become a distraction. So it might be that you really believe the Bible with all your heart, but you're just too busy to get into it. You're too busy to commit to the church to do the things that the Bible says the church ought to be doing. Well, God has an answer for that. In 28 more years, this church will be 40 years old. What kind of gospel will be proclaimed from this pulpit when Brendan is the age that Cody is now? Now, we look at that and we say, well, that's a long way, I, don't, I won't be here for that. But uh, many of you may be here if you're still here at this church what is going to be spoken from the pulpit at that time? Or will we make it that long? Or will this building become a museum or a place to have weddings or a dance hall or something else? That's the question. Now when Paul writes under the direction of the Holy Spirit to the Ephesians, he gives us some pretty good answers that we want to be aware of. And whether we continue in depth in this study right now, we want to see what's there and how that applies to the church. The book of Ephesians is separated into two neat, nearly equal sections. And that would be Ephesians 1 through 3 chapters and Ephesians 4 through 6. So the first section, Ephesians 1 through 3, we might say is the section on sound, sound doctrine, characterized best, I think, by the word truth, sound doctrine. We must know the truth before we can understand how the church is supposed to function, what our job is, or anything else. The second section we might call practical Christian living, and that might best be illustrated by the word love what does the book of Ephesians say about love? It talks about love for all the saints, forbearing with one another in love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There are a lot of things in there about the word love. But, how are we going to know what love is if we don't have truth? Which of these sections do you think would be more important? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, Uh-oh, he's going to say love is not important. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say that they are equally important. But if you don't have the truth about love, you don't know how to love. And you look at the culture, and the world certainly does not have the truth about love. They are as far off base as anything you can imagine. So we need to get the truth out there, We need to enable people to recognize the truth, and that's a huge problem in our world today, in our churches. Here's the goal of the enemy's attack, and we want to see just how he reaches that goal. The enemy response to God's answer. First, knock off the first section truth. If you can't get rid of it, just dilute it. And see, the word is, we don't want doctrine. Doctrine divides. We just want to love Jesus. Well, yeah, but what does that mean to love Jesus? And if that doesn't work, then we might just seek to immortalize the second section on love. Deemphasize, minimize, and even demonize the first section on truth. Here's the problem, as we have said. If we don't know what love is and we don't understand what it means, we're not going to know how to practice it even among ourselves. Example from our culture. Don't dare spank that child. That would be child abuse. If you love the child, you're certainly not going to spank the little darling. Well, what does the Scripture say? Proverbs. Uh Uh-oh, Christopher. We have to help me here. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, what is this rod? Are we going to teach him how to lead the music? What is this? Well, he goes on to explain that in Proverbs 23. Do not withhold discipline from a child if you strike him with the rod he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from hell. Now we have to discipline children in a loving way, but this is exactly the opposite of what the world would say. Another example, do you think it would be the loving thing to intentionally hurt a young man's feelings, a well-intentioned young man who could be a great blessing to the church? Mark 10:17. A young man comes to Christ. Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, there's the first problem. You don't do a bunch of things to inherit eternal life. But Jesus replied, what about the commandments? And he named some of them. And the young man said, oh, I've done all that stuff since I was a boy. Jesus understood something from that reply. He understood something already before the boy replied. Jesus looked at him and loved him, the text said. He looked at him and he loved him. And this was true love coming from the Lord. And he said, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And the young man went away sadly because he had great possessions. Now couldn't Jesus just have done the loving thing? Well all you have to do is put your faith and trust in me and believe. Isn't there a scripture that says something like that? But you see Jesus understood that his problem was the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he didn't even understand that commandment and he couldn't even get to first base. And Jesus was trying to help him see his need and his sinfulness. But he didn't get it, and he went away sadly. It didn't sound like a very loving response that Jesus gave him, but it was the truth, and it's what he needed. When you go to a doctor with a serious condition, I don't think he's going to avoid telling you the truth just so he can be thought to be loving and kind. He's going to tell you what needs to be done, and it may hurt but it's going to have to be done for your own welfare. So the combination of these two sections, the doctrine or truth section, the practical living or love section, this combination is designed to thwart the attack of the enemy upon the church. Remember his two weapons, dilute the Bible, distract the believer. So in his communication to the Ephesians, Paul employs two great themes to neutralize the enemy's strategy. God always has an answer for Satan, And here is what we see there, the two great themes. First, Christ has reconciled all creation to himself and to the triune God. He now rules in authority in heaven and on earth for the benefit and best interest of the church. Think about that. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, in all churches, there are all kinds of challenges because the enemy is hard at work. But we don't need to worry too much about the church. The church is going to be around. Now, as far as individual churches go, we don't know all the future of individual churches. We know if they follow the Word, God is going to provide all they need. So here we have Christ who is working all things for the benefit of the church. Uh, Listen to this verse from Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 19. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Hang on, God is still working through the church. Then the second thing, Christ has purchased with his blood a unified people from all nations. That's the church, universal. These people have to be taught and have to be discipled and they need to understand what it means to be a true and effective Christian and how this is going to work out in faith and in practice as part of the church. These are the two themes that we're going to see in the book of Ephesians. If we're doing these things, if we're investing in these things, God is going to take care of the enemy. This is how we're going to protect the church against false teachers and erroneous notions that creep into the church. Now, how would Satan attempt to weaken our commitment to serve Christ according to the scriptures? What would distract us from the study of his his word and from discipleship and from prayer and from all the other things God wants us to do? The enemy has certainly distracted our nation from the predicament that we are in as evidenced by the democratic presidential debate last Tuesday night. Did any of you hear that? Now, here would be the problems that I would say would be facing our nation. Now I think according to Scripture. One, wholesale violation of God's laws. Number two, bondage debt. Number three, corruption at every level of society, from cheating in sports to everything else. Number four, betrayal of Israel. That is not a good idea, I don't think. And really, we've become like the ancient Canaanites. We practice immorality, we sacrifice children, and we worship nature. But last Tuesday night, if you were listening, the distractions were, number one, electric cars for all Americans. Number two, free college education for all Americans. Number three, extended benefits of American citizenship to any and everyone who wants them. Read that open borders and taxes. Number four, democratic socialism, whatever that is. Someone has commented that the only place in the whole world that socialism has ever worked is in the American college classroom. And that m- might be right. The present comparison, how would we compare our modern world to the conditions in the city of Ephesus? Let's take a closer look here as we wind it down to what was happening in Ephesus. This was a very famous city in the ancient world, a very popular city. It's located in present-day Turkey. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire in Paul's day. It had an excellent harbor. It had been known as the Emporium of Asia because of the trade and the merchandise and everything that came to Ephesus. But unfortunately, they had some ecological problems. And because they cut all the trees and vegetation from the hills surrounding the port, silt clogged up the harbor, and they no longer were known for their merchandise and trade that they had been known for. But they had something else. They had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the temple of the goddess Diana. People came from everywhere to see this temple and some to worship there. The culture was in shock because of the Christians. Why? Throngs of tourists, curiosity seekers, religious devotees came to be amazed at this magnificent edifice and the hospitality industry in Ephesus Thrived on this popularity of the worship of the goddess Diana. Silversmith crafted images of the goddess and her temple, and innkeepers and restaurant owners profited from the large retinue of devotees who travel many miles to see the temple. The temple treasury served as a bank, loaning out large sums of money for those who could afford to borrow, including kings. In Acts 19.35, we read that the people thought that an image of the goddess had come down from heaven, from Jupiter, probably part of a meteorite or something, but the legend had grown up. Since Artemis was a patron goddess of sex, there was a prosperous industry of prostitution that flourished in the city without censure. Flowing out of this worship of this false god, there was all kind of sorcery and magic witchcraft, and the occult, and out of that came the Ephesia Grammata, the Ephesian words. These were six Greek words that were inscribed on one of the statutes of the goddess, and supposedly if you could get these words right, there would be a magic spell of protection for you, they would be put on you. But the magic, the power in the words, was in the sound of the words. And you had to pronounce them just exactly correctly for the magic to work. So there were books written as to how to pronounce the words. And you can still try to figure out today how to pronounce these six words. Kind of like a mantra that they would chant. And out of that came a great industry of the occult. And when they had the book burning, 50,000 pieces of silver worth, that's where some of those books came from, the Ephesia Grammata. So when Paul began to preach the gospel, the very foundations of the hospitality industry were shaken, and the people didn't like it. And Demetrius got all his guys together. He was the head of the uh, silversmith guild. And boy, did they have a riot. And fortunately the town clerk had some common sense and told them what they better do and what they better not do and quelled the riot. San Antonio is the seventh largest city in the United States. Suppose the hospitality industry in San Antonio suddenly shut down for religious reasons. Now wouldn't that be something? I don't think that's going to happen but what if it did? According to a recent survey in 2014, 31 million visitors come to San Antonio each year. They bring with them $13.4 billion. Out of that sum, $348 million goes to local government. One in eight San Antonians works for the hospitality industry, producing an annual payroll of $2.5 billion. John Clamp, executive director of the San Antonio Hotel Association, has stated that visitors, visitor spending impacts virtually every corner of the local economy. Sports, food, service, transportation, cultural events, health care, and much more. Many of the amenities and attractions San Antonians enjoy on a daily basis are available to them only because they are attractions that are also supported by millions of visitors. Now I don't think anybody could shut down the hospitality industry in San Antonio on religious reasons, but what if they did? Can you imagine the impact that would have on this city? And that's exactly the impact that it had on Ephesus. So these people were not going to take it sitting down. Of course, their trade didn't depend on water parks and museums and fiesta and uh, the Spurs basketball and all that kind of thing. But they had that one attraction of the worship of that pagan false religion, that pagan goddess, and they weren't about to lose that. Can you see the effect that Paul was having in his disciples on all of that surrounding area? So the culture was in shock. But our culture is in shock in some ways today. And they're in shock that we as Christians would even suggest that Planned Parenthood be closed down for using federal funds to try to market baby parts. And our culture is shocked that Christians would deny women the right to murder their own unborn babies. And they're in shock that churches would deny access and acceptability to those who practice alternate lifestyles, gender transformation, gay marriage, unconfessed, rejoicing in it. What a bunch of bigots in the church. That would be what the culture thinks of us. So if the culture's in shock, we see the church in retreat. Is it any wonder in our day that the church is in retreat? What does that look like? What happens when a church turns away from the faith? Well, I've got some things listed here, and we'll go through these uh, quickly. See where we might stand if this, if these things show up in your church, you've got some problems. Denial of basic Christian doctrines such as the Trinity, the deity of Christ deity of the Holy Spirit, salvation by grace. Some of these very things Paul is talking about in those first three chapters of Ephesians. Number two, denial of moral absolutes found in Scripture. A lot of people say, that's not something you have to do, that's a preference. Ordination of homosexuals, women elders and pastors, it might be politically correct, but not according to the Scripture. Failure to preach the gospel. The Gospel from 1 Corinthians 15. Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and His death for our sins. Using the Lord's name in vain, something that a surprising number of Christians do. Oh my God, why did that happen? You hear it all the time. And a lot of euphemisms as well. Failure to send and support missionaries. Marketing and merchandising out of the church for financial gain. Pastors who are more concerned with growing a church than preaching the truth. Pastors who don't pray and seek God's face. And of course, pastors who cave in to pressures from the church in contradiction to the Word of God. Pastors who fail to equip their congregations according to Scripture. Pastors who don't teach damnation. Now, that's not all we teach. But in the Bible, you have positive rewards and you have negative punishments all the way through Old Testament, New Testament. And a person without Christ is condemned to eternity apart from Christ. And that has to be a part of our message. Christians gathering teachers to themselves to make them feel good. And finally, evolution. Let me get that one in there. So let's quickly Look at some conclusions here. Number one, there's a lot riding on how you see the church and on the commitment of an individual Christian to the church. Is the church a take it or leave it thing? Is this God's gospel army that's going to go forth and conquer the world? What is our responsibility here in the church? Well, churches don't just exist and endure through the years automatically. It takes work and it takes commitment. And we look back in history and we see great men of the faith and then 40 years, 80 years, 100 years and the church where they were is apostate. It's incredible. Ask yourself this question. What if every person in this congregation, treats church the way I do? Regarding attendance, participation, prayer, giving, witnessing, caring. You just go right down the list. What if everybody does it the way I do it? Is it going to be a mighty gospel army? How much success has the devil achieved in my life and my family with his strategies of diluting the word and distracting the believer from the church and the work of the church. And finally, a Christian must at least have as great a commitment to truth as to love, or he's not going to know how to recognize true agape love as defined by God's word. Now, to remain in the faith, you have to be in the faith. I wonder if there's anybody here this morning who's just not sure if you're really in the faith. Christ offers open arms to come, confess your sin, ask forgiveness, invite Him to take control of your life, invite Him to clean out all those old thoughts, put in some new thoughts, and give you peace and love and joy and those things that He promises to His church. We have a great work in front of us. The culture is against us. We don't feel it so much in Fredericksburg, but it's out there and it's coming. Uh, Join me as we seek to do what we can to carry our part of the load of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have equipped us with everything that we need for life and godliness. I thank you for these faithful people, men and women, boys and girls in this congregation. I thank you, Lord, for the great responsibility that you have given us in the church. Lord, we want to see your church move victorious in our world today, in our lives today. Lord, we pray for the culture. But we understand that uh, the culture is not going to do anything unless the church does something first. Revival is not going to come to the culture. It would come to people who know you, who know something about you, and who understand the truth of your doctrine. Lord, help us to be diligent students of the Word. Help us to be firm in our commitment to the study of your Word, to prayer, individual, corporate, family prayer, To all the things that we need to do to fulfill the responsibility you've given us. Thank you so much that we have the body of Christ, that Christ is on the throne, and that he is working all things in the universe in the best interest of the church. Lord, help us to follow his example. Help us to reach out to others, both in the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ, and share the love of Christ. We can only do it if we are empowered by Your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.